I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> going to give the audience what I think they want. They want chasing and car crashing. They want the cops to bend the rules to get the job done. They want the boy to get the girl. They want the good guy to win. They want the bad guy to die. Hopefully in the biggest explosion the budget will allow. But most importantly, Senator, they want to walk into a theater and for 90 minutes forget the fucking mess that you have left of this nation. Go get your bubble gum. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Hello and welcome back, everyone, to the All Out of Bubblegum podcast. Today we are talking about the exploitation films Coffee and Bucktown, 1973 and 1975, respectively. And we have with us today Stein, Martin, and a new one to the cast, Zach. How are we doing, everybody? Hello. Hello. We do not have with us Martin today. I think you're thinking of Brandon. Oh my God! I'm sorry, Brandon. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. I'm like calling. I I see your face, and I still did that. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, just, well, we'll fix it. Yeah. Just thought Martin. Yeah. Just thought Martin had Bro. brought a wig today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a wig on the chin, wig on the head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All so right. well, for all of February, we're basically doing Black Exploitation Month. Uh, and uh, what better place to start than the Pam Greer classic, Coffee? So who, I don't know, is, is any, are any of you guys new to Pam Greer? I've seen a few of her films, but I'm definitely not an expert on her exploitation period. I've done a couple of uh, like Pam Greer runs before. Um, I think I watched Friday Foster last year. She watched Sheba Baby a couple of years ago. I watched Coffee before. And I think uh, Foxy Brown is the only like uh, black exploitation classics of her I've I've yet to see. I've even seen some of the like uh, uh, what's the one the Corman ones from the Philippines, the one that's Spartacus. Yeah, the women, women in prison films. No. Yeah, even uh, hit yeah. Big Bird Cage. Big okay, Bird that's, Cage. I've seen that one. I, all those melt together. All the early ones. I think I watched well, Big Dollhouse too. Yeah, I was gonna say it doesn't help that the names are so close. Yeah, women in cages, big bird cage, big dollhouse. It's like uh, it all sounds the same. Yep, that's. Uh, I did a video some years back on that, and the one that always stands out to me is the arena, and it's because it's a period piece. It takes that, place in the, the arena. Ro- yeah, times. that's the Spartacus yep. Uh, remake. Yep. Oh yeah, and that's excellent. after. After okay, I thought it was before coffee. That's my confusion. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. A couple of years ago, I for my blog, I did a whole month of black exploitation reviews. I did 31 movies in a whole month, and uh, because I'd always been really interested in the subgenre, you know, you see it referenced and parodied so much throughout, especially like growing up in the 90s when all the the boomers who had come of age in the 70s were now making movies. Um, so I uh, really became uh, kind of, I, would, I don't want to say I'm an expert, but I became much more familiar with the genre at that point. And I watched Coffee, uh, Foxy Brown, Sheba Baby, Friday Foster, and a bunch of Fred Williamson and Jim Brown, all the Shaft movies. I started with Sweet Sweet Back, and then I ended with uh, uh-huh. Black Dynamite. That's a good run. Yeah. And, and I love... Pam Greer, like like coffee. In my opinion, it's um, it's my favorite black exploitation movie. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's the best 
but it is my favorite, and I also think it's one of the best '70s exploitation films. Yeah, I uh, I would agree with that actually. Oh uh, yeah, me too. It, it really it's just a cut above the rest, and whatever whoever else was working at American International Pictures at the time must have been looking at like the Pam Grier, Jack Hill stuff, and been like, "What are we even doing here?" Because <laughs> because they're so so much better than the other ones coming out. Yeah, it's just. Uh... It's still shocking today when you watch it where it's it's very violent and just it goes places where you're like, oh, they're just going to do that then. Well, Jack Hill was always kind of uh, ahead of the curve there because if you go back and you watch Spider Baby, which was filmed in 60, I think it was filmed in like 65 and didn't and sat on a shelf for a couple of years because it was just so inflammatory. You know, it was a movie about had had like elements of rape, revenge and incest and all cannibalism and it was a little too much of a hot tamale for the early 60s so it didn't actually come out until 67 i have so jack hill was always pushing the envelope okay i've not seen spider baby i don't think i've seen earlier than pit stop highly recommended well and jack hill did um big dollhouse yes with pam Grier first which is one that she shot in the philippines yeah because Coffee is right. Pam Grier's first uh, lead in an uh, American production. She'd gone to the Philippines and shot a bunch of movies there, um, and including one directed by Jack Hill. Yeah, she sings the uh, But this was song. her first. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's reused in uh, Jackie Brown, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, and, you know, do we want to talk about the production of, like, the origins of this movie? How it was actually, Coffee is actually kind of a knockoff of another movie, but they rushed it out so it came out first. Yeah, it's funny because we're we're just talking about watching those movies too. But yeah, uh, let's go into it. Yeah, yeah. Because so this was, um, you know, uh, American International Pictures had a handshake deal apparently to produce Cleopatra Jones, which was going to be the first women woman led black exploitation action movie. But then uh, the people who made that movie, which oh my brain is, it was uh, Max Julian and um, Sheldon Keller took it to Warner Brothers. I guess they were probably offered more money over there. So as a, in order to get, you know, corner that market first, AIP rushed coffee out real quick. And I think uh, Jack Hill has said that the only specifications is that it had to star Pam Greer, it had to star black characters, and it had to have a lot of nudity and violence in it. <laughs> well, they did it. <laughs> it was shot really, really quickly, like under three weeks. Right. To, like, get it out. You get the feeling of that, uh, you know, seat of their pants kind of filming for a lot of it. Well, and so many uh, exploitation films of the 70s are like that, where they, you know, they had, like, two, th- maybe three weeks to shoot the whole thing, and it just has this really gritty kind of intimate... Uh, let's put on a show sort of energy. There, there's a just like the the scene where she's um, creating like a, a weapon out of a coat hanger, that kind of stuff. There's this like feeling when you watch this movie that they are on the set or something, and they're like, okay, like, how can we do this scene? And then they just like, oh well, if they do this really quick, puts this together, and I think a lot of the movie mm-hmm. feels like that. Like they have these little sets and they're just like okay what can we do in this set yeah and wasn't it pam greer's idea to put the razor blades in her afro so that when the other lady grabs her she gets her fingers all cut up i don't know that's a great idea though oh (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I thought I read somewhere that was her idea. Yeah, is it is it razor blades or uh, shattered glass that she puts in her hair? Oh, I thought it was razor blades, but it could have been shattered glass, I guess. Yeah, but that cat fight is yeah. epic. <laughs> Best cat fight since From Russia with Love. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and one of the things I, I you know, I, I talk about this being an exploitation film, and it really delivers on the, the flesh, of the flesh and blood equation, because I don't know if five minutes goes by in this film without some nudity. Yeah. Well, they picked a, they picked some, some good women to do that with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you, if you go back and you read um, Roger Ebert's review of this movie, he refers to Pam Greer as a spectacularly shaped mm. he's not wrong uh, excuse me she, he, yeah he says she has a beautiful face and astonishing form is, is how he refers to her well you know roger ebert did he had jungle fever <laughs> that's well established Him yeah and nero if you see the yes. white woman that's their mom <laughs> Yeah, um, and, uh, you know, Russ Meyer famously said of Roger Ebert, uh, he loved tits. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. If you hear that from forget that, when Russ that Meyer Roger says Ebert that. sort of came from, <laughs> like, Roger Ebert really just came from, like, making sleazy pictures and then became, like, a highly respectable journalist, and people forget that. Oh, yeah, he just used to make, like, <laughs> the sleaziest movies. Yeah, people don't know about... Uh, up and beyond the valley of the ultra vixens i think he wrote that one he wrote a couple of those movies i think he wrote beyond the valley of the dolls which is pam yeah, she's, film debut, actually. yes it is i mean she's just dancing in it but yeah <laughs> speaking of russ meyer um but uh, uh one of the things about this movie that makes it sort of different from the other black exploitation films that were coming out around that time is if you compare it to like um superfly or the Mac, like this film has a much more negative opinion on drug dealers and uh, pimps and, and sex traffickers. Yeah, I think that it's, uh, if, if I had to diagnose that, I think that it's part of the um, idea, whether true or not, that the government is intentionally poisoning black communities to keep them from prospering. And I think that's sort of where that might come from. Yeah, and that's something that definitely comes back with like the with Reagan and the crap. Yeah, and also it's sort of referenced again in the next film, Bucktown. It's there, but yeah, it, it was a constant thing. They bring it up again. Uh, watch Black Dynamite. That's a, a sort of a subplot to that movie. Uh, they, Black, the, yeah, Black Dynamite and they uh, cloned, Three the Hard Way yeah. touches on it. And they clone Tyrone also references this. You know, the, it's yeah, just I haven't a, caught up with that one yet. Oh, it's good. Uh, it's you know they they just take kind of the the joke elements of uh, Black Dynamite and they play it a little more straight, but the movie's still pretty comedic. So yeah, Jamie Foxx incredible in that one. Yeah, just gonna give a shot to him. Oh yeah, is that the movie he made like right before he almost died mysteriously? I I think so. Yeah, he's too close to the truth. <laughs> Last movie he made still, <laughs> but it's interesting because like the Mac and Superfly, they both come from. Uh, from black directors while coffee is like uh, comes from jack hill who's, who's very much a white man yeah yeah and most of the black exploitation movies were made by white directors and white filmmakers which well yeah um, that's why it's black exploitation because it's it's literally white people trying to exploit that oh shit there's a black market we never thought about that 
Right, yeah, that's the exploitation part of the the formula. Yeah, and this one is also, it's the only movie Pam Greer ever wrote anything on, apparently. She she contributed to the script, which is kind of interesting. Uh, at um, least the one that gave her credit. My understanding is that she was a frequent um, collaborator, but she was not quiet with her ideas for about any anything she's ever been in. Well, and, you know, like, there wouldn't be a movie without her, so, yep. like, her performance is... You you know if you watch a lot of these films, you watch a lot of Jim Brown or you know Fred Williamson, who we'll be talking about later. They're not like especially Jim Brown. You know they don't emote a lot. They're very stoic, tough, masculine guys. But with Pam Grier and in Coffee especially, she's also really vulnerable. Like she gets to be both an action hero and she gets to cry and you know and she has her heart broken and she falls in love and. So, um, in some ways, she gets to have a lot more depth than your typical black exploitation action hero would. And I definitely do think it helps that Pam Grier comes from an acting background and not from the NFL, which is, you know, <laughs> maybe not most NFL quarterbacks don't don't turn into the, the like the the actors with the widest ranges. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not known. Well, and it's so funny. Because, uh, you know, so many of the actors... I, I apologize if I'm talking over everybody. No, no, go ahead. But uh, so many of the uh, supporting players in these black exploitation movies were, like, classically trained actors. Um, like, I always think of William Marshall in the Blackula movies, who was the Shakespearean actor who was being asked to call people sucka and all of that. And in this movie, you can see it with the guy who plays um, the uh, the the first kind of pimp drug dealer guy who gets his head blown off in the beginning of the movie, yeah. that actor, you can just tell by his delivery that he is a classically trained actor who is asking to being asked to call people sucker and, and cracker and, and, you know, like, damn, I don't need any help getting a piece. You know, it's just, it's the disconnect is so hilarious. Well, I think also well, speaking of that, oh, oh, well, I was going to say, you know, when you look at, well, Blackula, I think it, really helps to have the lead or the, the Taisha, the character be played by somebody who feels distinct from the rest of the cast. Whereas I think Pam Greer, I think a lot of what she does is she almost like over exerts as an actress. And it really helps in this film because the movie is so extreme at times that what she's doing feels more real than pretty much anything else in the movie because you know it starts out i think she's a trauma nurse right so she has this demeanor that that just i don't know it's like it it relates it feels it it correlates like this character this person would be like this and often, yeah and anytime um okay you go first. Well, say, uh, in, in bucktown i think she is overplaying maybe an underwritten role Whereas in this, I think it, it just it works. What she's what she brings to the table works for the character so much more. Yeah, and uh, something she does repeatedly in this movie. Anytime Pam Greer calls somebody a motherfucker in this movie, you really feel it. Like you feel how the rage coming through. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. While my impression of the film is more positive than negative, I do have to offer a bit of a dissenting opinion on this film because that opening scene is so damn good that everything else feels a little downhill after that. I mean, she, like, blows the head off her, like, the drug dealer who, like, completely addicted her sister to crack or whatever and injects another guy with a needle. 
and it's a great opening scene. But after that, she's already done with dealt with the people who um, ruined her sister's life. And after that, it's just kind of you know her on another mission. I, I, I'm no Hollywood filmmaker, but if I was making this movie, I probably would have put like the people who wronged her sister more as like later on in the film rather than the opening scene. But that's just my opinion. The difference between Death Wish and Death Wish 2 is what you're saying. Oh, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Although, he never gets the criminals in Death Wish 1, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, true, true. Yeah, that's, like, I I think that it definitely has a, um, like, that's what it was originally going to be. Like, that that almost felt like that was going to be the movie. But they just kind of get it out of the way right at the beginning. So they have to victimize somebody else in her life um, to to get her to keep going which is, I guess, very Death Wish. Yeah. When I first saw that clip of her blowing a guy's head off with a shotgun, I thought that was going to be the climax of the film, but no, it's like the opening scene, and I was, was kind of like, where do we go from here now? But that's just how I reacted to it. But I do like the scenes of people being run over by cars. That's always good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The dummies getting smashed yeah. all over the place. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, because she only goes after, her next target's like King George, the, the pimp. With his own theme song telling <laughs> yes. us that he's a pimp, yeah. which I appreciate because he's got a very subtle, yes. subtle dress <laughs> yeah. You could not tell he was a pimp. I thought he looked like somebody out but of a yeah. Renaissance fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she goes, she goes after him, but she only goes after him because, like, oh yeah, he 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 has prostitutes and they use drugs, and so I guess <laughs> that's sort of like yeah, it isn't it isn't the same motivation. So it's more like that wish four in that sense, I think. Just get rid of the drugs. That's true. Yeah. Well, as it says on the poster, she is a one-chick hit squad. So the idea is kind of a general war on... She's declaring war on anybody who deals drugs in the community, as they say in Black Dynamite. So I... Uh, as, as far as um, kills go, actually, I think my favorite is like shooting the guy in the pool. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. I think that the movie doesn't play to getting bigger and bigger which um, might be that sense that you're feeling there Brandon um, yeah. instead it kind of goes with a a sense of catharsis at the end um, whether or not that's earned I guess is subjective that's her walking off on the beach at the end that's I think it's meant which, to be played which is a, as okay I'm finally done yeah yeah and that's such a great ending too because you know this film most movies of this type, usually end on kind of a triumphant note where the the black hero defeats the almost always white racist villain um but this one has a real downbeat ending where at the end of the film you get the impression that coffee is kind of defeated you know she she's completed her quest and gotten her revenge but she feels kind of broken by it yeah there's nothing left for her and also it's like the guy who was the sort of the hero supposed to be like the the black congressman who's going to help the black community turns out to be just as corrupt and backstabbing as everyone yeah. else. Right, yeah. So it's it's definitely a very cynical movie in that regard and a very uh I mean and even Coffee is kind of a morally ambiguous character when she um she finds the one prostitute in the house and holds her down and threatens to cut her face again with a broken bottle. Yeah. Yeah, that scene was pretty intense. I was like, what is happening right now? I mean, I'm, I know I'm supposed to root for coffee, but that's a little rough. Well, that, that's what I was saying earlier, where you just don't, you're, you're, it's shocking. You know, they just go to extremes all the time. I think that the ending, uh, when, when it turns out the guy 
the congressman is a villain as well. I think that's shocking because it just, it's a very seventies, I guess, because it just feels so downbeat and mean. Right. And, uh, and I saw your, uh, letterbox review of mentioning that Stein, um, about the ending of the movie, <laughs> what pushes coffee <laughs> over the edge. <laughs> yeah. It's like, ah, you backstabbed the black community. Okay. Ah, uh, you try to kill me. Mm, it's Okay. She's, he's sleeping with a white woman, though. <laughs> Shoot him right in the dick with that shotgun. Yeah, that's that's the final straw. <laughs> really is. It's like he's pleading for forgiveness, and she's just about to be okay with it. And that's like, oh, oh no, that's white women. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like you know, Pamgra has an amazing tear rolling down her cheek, and you can feel like even after he's you know betrayed her and sold her into sex slavery, and then tried to get her hooked on drugs, and you can tell she's almost willing to forgive the guy because she loves him so much. And then, yeah, the, the white girl walks out of the bedroom and, nope, shoots his dick off. <laughs> Be like that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it do. Uh, and you mentioned the car crashes, that, that climax where she, I guess it really is kind of the big action beat of the movie, the final action beat of the movie, where she drives the car through the front of the beach house and runs over um, the bodyguard cop whatever he's supposed to be the with the eye patch that's such a great you know you talk about a great dummy car crash sequence that that is a highlight for sure well he he basically you know there's that austin powers gag where the guy is down the hall and he just has his arm out and going no and the car just keeps coming <laughs> that's kind of how i feel about his death like <laughs> he, he has so much time he cleans his glasses off and everything he's <laughs> just like is that really a car heading towards me with its headlights blaring well to be sure. fair he would be you know he wouldn't have any depth perception because of the one <laughs> that's <eye>. fair yeah. <laughs> how far away is, is that, that car, car? <laughs> is that car outside or is it 50 meters down i can't tell <laughs> that's his last thought. But yeah, uh, my yeah. favorite part. I love that when she goes undercover uh, as the prostitute, she fakes a Jamaican accent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm wondering why. What is with this? Is there is there a thing where just every black actor think they can do a Jamaican accent? Because it's <laughs> this also happens all the time on Miami Vice, where Tubbs <laughs> always thinks he can do a Jamaican accent, and it, they're they're terrible at it. It is like why why is this like a go to thing? Who who told you you could do a Jamaican accent? Because yeah, you can. It's, it's really bad. Uh, like Pam Grove is great in this movie. I think her performance is wonderful. But yeah, the the faux Jamaican accent is it, it sounds like almost more kind of like she's doing sort of a going for more of a British kind of royalty kind of thing. But then she throws in a mon every once in a while. It's it's really bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I want to say just I know Marty's not here to, to be annoyed that I bring up Miami Vice again, but it is relevant because <laughs> because Pam Gray does play Tubbs's girlfriend on Miami Vice for like three episodes. It's, it's not completely off the out of nowhere. No. <laughs> well, I think the idea in this is that she's so exotic I think, and, and that's the accent she decided to go with to be exotic, was Jamaican. Yeah, I guess she figured that would be easier to pull off than, I don't know, some other exotic location, you know. Yeah. I, I guess Jamaica's more glamorous than Uganda or whatever. <laughs> um, because, and that scene where with uh, the Alan Arbus character, the... Uh, the mob boss she's trying to seduce, where he gets her in the bedroom 
and he gets her on his knees and he says some some not nice things to her, some words I will not repeat. And <laughs> um and you can see like and this is what I really like about Pangra's performance. You can actually see in her face the turn. Like she she you can see the gears turning where she thinks like, Okay, I have to if I'm gonna appeal to this guy and, and get one over on him, I have to appeal to this whole like she admi- immediately clicks in her brain that, okay, I have to be submissive to him, but then he spits on her, and that's the that goes too far. That's where she has to pull the gun out and threaten to shoot him at that point. Yeah, uh, I think the point is really just violence. There's just so much. I, I have to assume this really messed with people's sensibilities back in the day because it just keeps going. Whether it's you know the the blades in the hair or just Sid Haig beating on women, you know, <laughs> Pam Greer. Groping them, too. Completely gratuitous yeah. groping. <laughs> well, there's so much leering in this movie. There's a whole scene that's where she goes out to, um, like, a. it's a strip cocktail club. I don't know. Right. And that's it's how just it a naked starts, woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, and that's weird. That's what a congressman is, isn't it? Yeah. He's just... <laughs> yeah. I think that lady that's dancing is the one he he's sleeping with at the end of the movie too. Oh, you know, I didn't put it together. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. They could just be very similar white looking, similar looking white women, but I don't know. Uh, I feel I'm recognizing those breasts from earlier. <laughs> well, <laughs> she didn't. She didn't put it together. <laughs> and that but, was the uh, thing. There with... might be something going on with that guy. Yeah. That's the place he took her. Yeah. Yeah. And, and... Yeah. Just weird. Also, like. Imagine a politician going to like a strip <laughs> joint and be like, "Yeah, this is good. I would like it would kill your political career now." Uh, Unless you were Trump sure about that, but, but... <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's what I was getting at. Yeah. Um, well, and that was the thing with seventies movies. There were just people would walk into rooms and there would just be naked women in there. That, that was just I thought that was the eighties. <laughs> well, even worse, so, like I think of like in a there's a scene in the original Dirty Harry where like it opens on a like a, there's a shot a, an edit a cut and then it opens on a naked woman in a bed and then it just pans off to something else like just some completely gratuitous nudity just for the the pleasure of it just because everybody enjoys looking at breasts i, I always when i think of dirty harry and then i think of uh, the hot mary scene which is this obese woman in the alley <laughs> and dirty harry gets beat up because the guy, there's a guy who thinks that he's trying to peep in on Hot Mary. Right. It's just this obese <laughs> naked woman. Yeah, and I mean, coffee's superpower in this is sort of like that everybody is too horny for coffee. <laughs> for Everyone wants to fuck Pam Grier and they can't think straight. Like, that's how she lures everyone. Even Sid Haig yeah. is like, oh yeah, I've had you locked up in a cage for. <laughs> for for weeks and gotten you hooked on smack, but mm, yeah, you want to have sex with me now? I believe it. I'm too horny for <laughs> right, you. Right? Yeah. Pull over at, so I can jump out and and we can go fuck under a bridge. <laughs> Before I execute you. Yeah. <laughs> well, to be fair, I think even you go back to the the cat fight scene. Um, she's in the room with women, you know, and you know they they. Every woman is jealous of her. Every man obviously wants her. And she, when they spill her the drink on, on her dress and she gets up, she is just statuesque. Like one of her boobs falls out. Right. And <laughs> it's just, and, and she just looks a cut above everybody there, you know, regardless. And then to emphasize that point, they have her rip the tops off of almost every other woman yes. in the room. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> That's a good, to... well-choreographed fight, I thought, with all the people flying over furniture <laughs> yeah. and all the props being used. I thought it was a pretty good fight. Yeah, and, it's and a that's, great sequence. You know, when you watch a lot of black exploitation films, the fight choreography is not always so great. Like you could tell, a lot of these films were made for very little money, and they just kind of made them up on the spot. Like the film we'll be talking about later, there's some good examples in that. But yeah, in this one, they actually, uh, I doubt very sincerely, they had anything like a stunt choreographer in this production. But they definitely put <laughs> a little more effort into making the action better. No, they do the thing that you actually see people do a lot uh, in modern films, uh, more modern films, I guess I should say, which is that when they're fighting, it goes to handheld. And so it's just the camera's kind of waving with the motion. And uh, yeah, it works. And I, I apologize to the crew this movie, looking at its IMDb page, there is in fact a stunt coordinator credited, Bob Miner. So there you go. Maybe that's why it's better than oh, the <laughs> the fight scenes and uh, <laughs> other stuff. Oh God, same. Uh, oh God, this guy was in Commando. He did the stunts for Escape from New York. Oh wow. So no wonder it's a step a step above. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Bob Miner's uh, ironically a major name, I think. In stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Another thing talking about this movie. You know, like we when I first saw it, I'd always heard that Pamger was kind of something of this feminist icon and it's so there's it's 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 such a bizarre thing because you know the movie is extremely leering and you know i don't think it's going to win any awards for its uh representation of and portrayal of women but at the same time you know it, you, you you referenced how everybody's horny for pangur and her power is her sex appeal and she just makes the, all the men around her you know just just fall completely at her feet and um so it is sort of it kind of gives you both like it allows it it delivers the cheap thrills that the drive-in grindhouse audiences would be expecting in 1973 but at the same time it does have kind of um you know i I do think there would have been a big novelty to see a powerful woman in a role like this at the time oh yeah well there's nobody really doing this uh you, you i've for years people would say and I still hear people say this, which is the Princess Leia, the first feminist or strong female, whatever, you know, action hero. This thing. I'm like, they were doing this years before Pam Greer practically invented it. Yeah. Uh, but it's, if you look at it like, oh, well, the camera's leering, you're like, sure. The, and, and there's definitely, there's so much exploitation in the film. But the text of the film is that the men are trash. The, the politicians aren't can't be trusted. Um, the only people that can be trusted are these the, uh, the this one woman uh, caregiver. She's a nurse. She, she's always tried to do the right thing, uh, and instead of being reactive, she decides to become proactive and goes straight to the heart of the corruption. Yeah, though. Yeah, and you. Sh- yeah, and okay. I mean, you go first. <laughs> yeah, Pam. I'm just saying, like uh, Pam Greer was a big. She was really. It was her idea, basically, to be be naked all the time. That was something she viewed as a, as a like a feminist statement from her. That it was like, yeah, stop, stop, like making a big deal out of the the female body. It's just here. It's what I got. Look at it. Accept it. Fuck off. Yeah, she's also very been very vocal about the idea of uh, like the black pride, where it's you know not only is this her as a woman naked, but she's she's a this powerful, beautiful black woman that's naked. They can be sexual, they can be all these things, and and still powerful. You can still take her seriously, 
even after you've seen her naked about five times in the film. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's different because in all the black exploitation films, pretty much, the villain is always the white establishment. It's always, you know, the man. It's the source of white power in the film. Um, but Coffee is a little different where it really is kind of all men in general that are scumbags because, as we say, her her boyfriend turns out to be uh, a bastard. And, uh, and really the only decent man in the movie is her friend who gets beaten. We don't even know if he makes it. Like, he gets put in the hospital and they say he has brain damage and that's never followed up on. But uh, weirdly, he's a cop, which is very unusual for a heroic figure in one of these movies to be a cop. Yeah, it is interesting to note. Uh, I'm not really sure how to read that, other than that it is uh, different for the genre. At least what it became, especially, you you know, we will talk about Bucktown, which definitely goes into that. That But there's usually an element of just the authorities are... Are way in on it. Yeah, fuck the police, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, they do make the point of noting that he's like the one good cop on the force. But um, yeah, I just uh, I love this movie. Um, the soundtrack we have to talk about. You know, black exploitation films are identified by their funky soundtracks. They this movie very much from its very opening credits has what you call the the wakachu the wakachu 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 sound <laughs> yeah and this one does it i don't know about better than anybody else yeah well the the theme song where they just repeat you know coffee is the color of her skin over and over again it's not <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah the theme song is like you're like oh yeah this is cool and then it's just okay it just you're just saying that again like, oh, and again, no, the, and again. They they, they were again. able okay, to afford yeah. one song in those three weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you re- you recorded uh, half a verse and you looped it. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite on the same level as uh, the Shaft theme or even like the Slaughter theme. You know, it's they they couldn't get a an Isaac Hayes or a um, oh shit Billy. What was the guy who did the Slaughter theme? Damn it! Um, oh, Billy Preston. I think thank you, famous. Billy yeah. Preston. Yeah. Um, yeah, they couldn't afford any um, big star like um, who uh, Roy Ayers is the composer, and then the woman singing was let me look this up real quick was a D. D. Bridgewater, and I'm not familiar with that person. You know, uh, if there are any <laughs> jazz aficionados in the audience, please excuse me for not being familiar with her contributions to the genre. But she's definitely not a name compared to some of the other musicians I just mentioned. Uh, I'm, I I did look up the Roy Ayers, who is the musician who worked on the on the film. And the only thing I knew of his is the is a disco song called Don't Stop the Feeling. Yeah, it looks like he doesn't uh, yeah. have a, a lot of film credits. So this this is like his really only uh real work as a composer. Looks like he's mostly uh, like a musician, musician, like a um, pop musician. So that's interesting. Makes sense, though. That's that feels very. What is it? Just kind of thumb on the pulse. Yeah, the, and, and not unusual. The black culture for, kind of thing. Yeah, not unusual for this genre where they would usually have soul singers and funk musicians doing the soundtracks. Yeah, they got another big one, Trouble Man, which had uh, Marvin Gaye doing the soundtrack. 
and uh, James Brown doing um, Black Caesar. It's another one we got to do one of these days. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, and you know, when I uh, going just referencing going back to how I said I did that month of black exploitation films, which was a couple years ago, but I had a checklist I did, and this was inspired by AOBG, how you guys would have your checklist at the end of your reviews and specific checklists for specific actors. Uh, so I s- stole that from you guys. So when I did my uh, black exploitation <laughs> checklist, I had twelve um, items, and if I can just go through these real quick, they're uh, okay. afros, afros or sideburns, brothels or pimps, churches or pastors, funky soundtrack, homophobic caricatures, inner city setting, uh, nightclub act, plot involving drugs or organized crime, racist authority figures, sticking it to the man. Sweet love making and use of street slang, and out of that, coffee uh, has eleven out of the twelve of those. If only they could have had a funeral with a preacher showing up or a scene in a church, it would have been a, a twelve out of twelve. But just barely missed it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, it's got his base is pretty dang covered though. <laughs> but yeah, happy to help uh, <laughs> as far as coming up with a list. That's fun. Yeah. So I mean, is there anything else anybody else wants to say about this one? You know. I said uh, uh, King George's death scene is harrowingly violent. Brutal. Like, yeah. That is so... You're like, you're not... Exp- I mean, I know some guy got his head blasted off with a shotgun earlier, but it's still it's still shocking when it happens, like how how like brutal, and it just goes on, and then you see his, his corpse, like basically his whole face scraped off at the end. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I said at the, the onset. This is just like wildly violent film. Yeah, if you haven't seen the movie, like they they lynch him by dragging him from a car and like just scrape his face off on the asphalt. It's Yeah, and it's and sickening. it's pretty gratuitous too. Like at that point in the like I mean, I guess Coffee is playing these kind of doing almost a Yojimbo thing, playing these sort of mobster pimp figures against each other, but it really doesn't like they didn't need to have it be this long extended sequence where he's being brutally murdered. Well, there's a there's a moment where I mean it's almost comedic how long it goes on because they're they're driving around a neighborhood and they drive through like caution signs and and you know emergency cones and he's hitting every single thing they they drive through. <laughs> yeah, you'd think yeah, somebody would have noticed and said something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got the same impression when they put like the the rope around his neck i was like oh no this is this is terrible but then they're like driving through all these places and i was like kind of like this is actually kind of almost humorous why would they do this and it's it was kind of a mood whiplash for me yeah well there's a reason they don't show the the dog in national lampoon's vacation they just say it Because when they do show this guy, you're like, oh, my God, that's disgusting. And also, it's fucked up because because King George didn't actually do anything. Uh, Coffee just lies about it, too. She doesn't want to admit that, oh, no, she's just there to kill kill the guy, the mobster, by by her own accord. And she just lies and says, oh, King George sent me. And they just, like, brutally murder him because... She lied about it. Well, yeah, but he, he's a pimp. He was and, just out there pimping. Yeah, well, he, he's pimping and he's getting <laughs> girls hooked on smack, so he he, he got what he deserved. <laughs> <laughs> I'd agree with that. So yeah, um, I guess on to um, to Bucktown. All right. So as far as a Pam Greer film goes, I would say 
it's a lesser film, even though she's still just, you know, the hottest woman in town like once again. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, and, it's honestly, it's a bit weird that you picked this one as the second Pam Grier movie, because this is like Pam Grier, Pam Grier fizzling out almost. This is like her second, her, she has one black exploitation lead after this one, and then she basically was stuck doing minor supporting work until we get to Jackie Brown. Well, I would... I, I think that what that, that what Bucktown is is less a Pam Group movie than it is just it's a Fred Williamson movie. Well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> so it, it's it's weird that she's there because I guess if in a modern sense, if if there was an actress that had a film that came out as good and as strong as Coffee, you would expect her to not be taking. Um, side roles like what she plays in Bucktown so I think that's and honestly that's really my only negative about the movie because it I, I actually I really like most of Bucktown I just don't like that Pam Greer is not coffee yeah and she yeah. sort of spends spends the first half of the movie really distrusting Fred Williamson and they were like they think he's, he's they don't like him they don't really like takes them a long time to kind of come around to like, oh yeah, this guy, he's actually good. Well, on the turn, the way that happens is hilarious because he like, she hates him because she blames him somehow for the death of his brother that I think she was romantically involved with. Um, but then like he kisses her and then immediately they fall into bed. And like from that point on, she just loves him, which happens in so many Fred Williamson movies where women just both Fred Williamson and Pam Grier together. Cause they're like, that's both of their superpower is that, Nobody can can resist fucking them, and now they're <laughs> yeah. together, and they're. And it turns out that they're not immune to each other's charms either. It was uh, bound to happen. <laughs> but yeah, I do wish she had more to do in this film. Like, there's even a a sequence where she's kind of a damsel in distress. Like, I was really worried they were going to like go into a, a rape sequence, and thankfully, uh, Fred swoops in and and saves her. But it is sort of disappointing to see her in a more typical kind of love interest sort of role. I would have liked to have seen her kick more ass in this. This is true. I enjoy this one more than Coffee, but I do agree that, like, Pam Greer is wasted here for the most part. She just disappears into the wallpaper for the most part, which is very unfortunate, but we still get some great Fred Williamson moments. Yeah, he... It's funny because I always think of Fred Williamson. He has a great look. He looks like he should be this kind of big, stoic, badass guy, but he always plays it very high octane he's never like the quiet guy yeah he's got a lot of swagger yeah and it's kind of weird also because freddie williamson more than any other black exploitation star like took control of his own career and he does not understand what makes him good <laughs> yeah he's sort of like the opposite of like he i think his hero is probably like jim brown because he kind of tried to go that same route you know this is the ex-footballer turn action star and uh, but Jim Brown, I think, either maybe he just let casting directors do their thing, or he understood what was his asset. And I, I don't get that with Fred Williamson. It's always like confusing why he's playing these kinds of characters. Yeah, and this is notable as like one of the last movies Fred Williamson did before he started directing. Like literally the uh, the same year this came out, his two uh, Mean Johnny Burroughs and Adios Amigo uh, came out later in 1975, and those were the first two films he directed. And then before this, he uh, wrote and produced 
a movie whose title I will not say. <laughs> <laughs> Is it Boss? Oh well, then then tell me. Just just okay. I didn't know which one you're Is talking about. Yeah, yeah. Which oh, okay, Boss. Yeah, it could have been. It could have been what the Criterion called the Soul of Black. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. Which Is one. that That's what that what... was? That's yeah, that the, was that. That's, it's a sequel to another movie whose name I can't remember. <laughs> no, no, that's the, it's the they put out the Legend of Black Charlie is what they oh, put yeah, out. Oh yeah, that's to, what uh, it was. They okay. put on um, um, the when they put it on Criterion Channel, they called it that. Uh, the Soul was never put on the Criterion Channel. Yeah, and uh, and the original release uh, they used a different word than black. Yeah, uh, same with Boss. Well, there was more more to the to the title of Boss <laughs> when it was originally released. Yeah, yeah. I can still remember but, uh, renting Boss from my video store, local video store, and just saying, "I've never heard of this film before. It's just called Boss." And then I put it in. I'm like, "Oh, it's that <laughs> film." Okay, I got you yeah. now. Yeah, wait till you hear the theme oh, song. Oh, I know yeah. that theme song will, will stop a room <laughs> in its tracks. If you like, if you want people to leave during a party, just put on the theme song to that movie, and everybody will will shuffle out afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this film uh, was uh, directed by a guy named Arthur Marks, who was mostly a television filmmaker up to this point. He directed seventy six episodes of Perry Mason. <laughs> and, uh, oh. And this was an independent production that was acquired by AIP. Apparently, um, Sam Arkoff or whoever was in charge of AIP at the time saw the movie and liked it enough to pick it up. And then after this, uh, Arthur Marks had a had a little run of kind of late period black exploitation films because uh, the same year he did Friday Foster, and then he did a movie I really like called JD's Revenge. And then his last feature film before he oh, went yeah. back into directing was a Rudy Ray Moore movie, uh, The Monkey Hustle. Uh, JD's Revenge is great. That's a really different. Yeah, one. that's kind of fun. They're like doing like a sort of horror possession kind of thing. Yeah, it's one of the black exploitation horror movies, but it isn't like a black version of a classic monster. It's not Black Yellow or Blackenstein or Doctor Jekyll and Mister Black. It's sort of a <laughs> original story, but set in that area and, and, and era. Yeah, I always preferred uh, Black Creature from the Black <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was say, uh, this is another one that I really like because it's just so just violent uh, and at times it's just mean. The what's what the what's the sheriff's name, but what uh, that guy where is it? He's a chief. But they the fact that he's around they just keep him around for a good deal of the movie before just summarily, like randomly executing him almost off screen. But he's like right there. He's just standing there, and the guy's just eh, here's my gun, and boom, just kills him. Yeah, what's up with that <laughs> yeah. character, the like, chief yeah. of police? Because he's almost like a sympathetic character in a way, but he's not. He's like the head of all these corrupt cops who are murdering black people, and yet the film tries to make you yeah. feel like almost sympathetic for him at times. I was like, I'm not sure what to feel. It's like, he's the least racist cop. Come <laughs> on. That's a redeeming feature. So he, no, he, he's, he's just corrupt. He, the, the, the thing that makes him, uh, more sympathetic is that it wasn't about racism. Maybe he just was just corrupt in general. Well, he's introduced, the other cops um, are racist. you know, he, he sits down at this table and he prays and he's framed by these two candles. So in my brain, it's like, okay, so this guy represents the white Christian majority, but yeah, then he gets thrown in the jail cell, which I think is supposed to be, you know, a very symbolic gesture, a white or, or a black man putting a white lawman in a jail cell. But um, 
but the movie has that weird narrative turn where uh, 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 Thomas Rasulala becomes the villain in the second half of the movie. Yeah, I'm just going to call him Roy because that's what his character is <laughs> called. Uh, yeah, I guess we should explain what the movie's about, really. It's sort of like uh, Fred Williamson coming into town as the lone wanderer to uh, bury his brother. And he discovers that uh, town is run by uh, racist, uh, corrupt cops. Even though it's prim- like a, it feels like it's a pr- um, dominantly black um, inhabited town. Yes. Yeah. This is. It's very like if if this was a western, you wouldn't blink. Uh, it would. It would. If if it was a white cast and it was just about a guy coming to bury his brother and he finds out, oh, it's the, all the the town and the cops and the city officials are, are kind of crooked. The mayor is sort of uh, cocked by these, by the chief of police and they're running their own operation, um, scamming the local populace because they can't do anything about it. And then he would come in and right the wrongs. He calls in outside help. And, and that's uh, in terms of Roy, it was an old friend of his who, and they have some muscle who comes in um, notably, Carl Weathers as a character named Hambo. But if this was a a western, you would you would just be like, yeah, it's kind of a cliche western tale. But yeah, it's which has the structure of a western, like cleaning yeah. up the town and then. But the where it takes its turn is that Roy immediately gets drunk on power, and him and his crew decide now oh, this is actually a pretty sweet deal. They the corruption operation that these police were running. And now we want to fill that power vacuum, and we will be the ones profiting upon the misery of the this populace. Right, and uh, Bernie Hamilton, the police chief from Starsky and Hutch, gets beaten up twice by both first the white guys and then the, the black guys. Yeah, that poor guy can't catch a break yeah. in this movie. No, Captain Dobie. And, and that's an interesting <laughs> observation. Like, like I, I sort of read this as how... Because you always have to look at black exploitation as, you know, obviously these are films made in reaction to... Um, you know, the white power system that the black population had to live under, even though, as we said, most of them were directed by, written and directed by white crews. But in this one, I kind of get the feeling like, okay, so maybe the moral message here is like, if black people want to be free of oppression, they can't act the same way that the white people in power did. They have to go their own way completely and, and and not oppress their own people or something. Trying to read any sort of social analytical element into these movies is sometimes a fool's errand, but that's how I read it. Well, yeah, well, there's there's an element to that in Coffee as well, that there needs to be a, a genuine community that works together. Otherwise, you're never going to uh, overtake these power structures. Yeah, and another thing that's interesting about Bucktown specifically is, like, as I said earlier, I think I was on mic when I said this, that by 75, black exploitation was sort of, I don't know if anybody recognized that, anybody making these movies recognized it at the time, but it was kind of starting to go on its way out. By In like a year or two, the genre would be pretty much gone. And then other stuff would emerge as being popular in the drive-in and the grindhouse markets. And one of those genres that would come out and kind of supplant the black exploitation movie is what I suppose you could think of as its diametric opposite, which is the exploitation redneck movie, you know, Smoking the Bandits, and and mm, yeah. and this film is kind of like a, it's sort of like a, a mix of those two 
genres almost because it kind of is like black heroes up against good old boys yeah well there's definitely that um like there's almost like a clan element to the cops when they stand when they're they surround fred williamson and pam greer in their house and they're and they're shooting in the windows and then just start yeehawing and and everything you definitely get that Uh, they shoot his drinking bird toy too like that little like bird that goes up (laughs) and down it's like how could you do that you bastards you honky bastards that's what homer simpson uses to keep the springfield nuclear power plant working and they shot it (laughs) but that's just what i was thinking anytime i see one of those uh, drinky birds in a movie i always a dark man is always the first thing that comes to mind (laughs) yeah me me too well fair enough (laughs) But, like, how t- small is this town anyway? Like, it feels kind of bustling at times for what's supposed to be, like, a little small, sleepy southern town. And it has, like, a 19-screen porno theater at one point, or a couple <laughs> points, I guess. And has, like, big bordello and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I just, I mean, I liked it a lot, but how small is this town we're dealing with right now? Well, Brandon, I can, I could never get fact, that. answer that question for you because uh, Buchanan, Georgia is, in fact, a real place. And uh, as of the 2010 census, it had 1,104 people living there. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that's tiny. That's, not that's, a that's lot. pretty small, and I'm used to small towns. Yeah. That's smaller than my hometown, and we could not run a porn theater there. <laughs> Let alone a bustling club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there there is that shot of the porn theater in, in the early part of the film, and I kept waiting for like that to come back around where they would do like the cleaning of the town montage where you know all the the sleazy stuff would disappear and that just never happened so i guess fred williamson likes the porn theater which (laughs) that's a good observation yeah (laughs) yeah he's just making sure that instead they're just they're running uh black produced they're showing black love by herschel gordon lewis (laughs) oh i've seen that it's it's awful This, you just you're just looking at a guy's ball sack the whole time. <laughs> but uh, you know, and another thing, like the big what you would think would be the big action climax of this movie occurs when uh, Fred Williamson and his little kid sidekick get a hold of a a literal tank. Yeah, <laughs> and they drive it through the wall of a prison. But the, then the movie keeps going after that sequence, and it ends on this extended fight scene between Duke and Roy. And when I talk about how the stunts in Coffee were really good, and I compare them to the fisticuffs in this movie... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, it should be noted, it was the same person doing the fight, so... Yeah, I'm seeing that now. I didn't... It's Bob Miner. Yeah. Bob Miner's back. Yeah, but uh, I guess he didn't have as much time to coordinate the stunts in this one, because they're pretty... That, that fight scene just feels like it goes on forever yeah i get the impression when i watched it that somebody probably fred williamson uh said we're not going to do screen fighting we're going to do real fighting (laughs) and so it's a really brutal cheap fight where they're they're, you're grabbing everything around them throwing at each other and hit each other with it trying to uh, throw each other over the stairs or hit each other with a sledgehammer it's pretty wild but the problem with real fighting is that it's not very cinematic so there's a part where they're just like rolling on the ground oh yeah yeah they're like dry humping each other yeah and if you've ever seen a real fight that's pretty much what it looks like yeah but you know outside of uh if somebody that knows how to fight if you you watch boxers they'll you know you know stand up and square up a little bit but not 
uh, any fight that takes to the ground, it's not very cinematic. It's very difficult to do anything with that, uh, especially if the actors were are very strongly opposed to the idea of making it look like a, a fight. Yeah, and like a movie fight. And, and I know, and, um, you know, Stein, you did that last year. You watched a whole bunch of Fred Williamson movies, <laughs> and I, the impression I get of him as an actor is that he has kind of a an ego about him. <laughs> and um, so, like, like are all his fight scenes? like this or i mean is, is can he actually fight or is it like a, a david carradine movie where he can clearly obviously not fight oh he's a real he has he's he's an actual black he's a black belt okay. in several kinds of karate in real life but it, that's not the character he's playing okay. so i don't think that's the way he's going with it and uh well bucktown is uh, from uh, 75 yeah that's even after that man bolt which is like he shows off his martial arts in that one so uh, I don't know what's going on here. He should be... He's, he's, he's playing a street fighter. He does love a fight in... To uh, do a fight. I mean, Hammer, really, is the one you should be watching for a Fred Williamson fight movie, I guess, where he just yeah. plays uh, a bare-knuckle boxer. Yeah, that's a good one. And a real boxer, actually. Which is what it turns out. It's like Black Rocky. But before Rocky. Yeah. And hey, and- this was so long watch Hammer and just... Uh, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I enjoyed the final fight. I thought it, re- it reminded me a lot of They Live, the alley fight from that. A little but... bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would get those same vibes. And I thought it was enjoyable, despite like the whole you know kind of like scenes where they're just like dry humping each other on the floor. But when they're actually up using props and stuff, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, it's it's very it's pretty gnarly. It's like if you had two big dudes and neither one wanted to quit. And they were allowed to use whatever the hell they wanted in the fight uh, outside of guns because that's what they agreed upon at the beginning. Uh, I think it would look like this. Mm-hmm. They are they are beating each other with trash cans, and you know the the sledgehammer notably comes into play. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I think it's pretty cool, but it's not uh, as I said, it's not like cinematic in the sense that you know it's not Steven Seagal in Above the Law whipping out Akita for the first time anybody's ever seen it. It's it's not you're not going to get that. It's not Bruce Lee doing his thing there's no fast hands these are like every time someone does punch it's a wallop it's just a huge haymaker coming from you know all the way down alabama comes up <laughs> every time <laughs> and and they do they just get like messed yeah. up bloody so it works in in the brutality sense but it doesn't work in Hey, like a, any cool visual sense. And talking about the um, the violence, there is notably a sequence in this movie where somebody gets shot in the ass. <laughs> yeah, there's some good squib work here. That's true. I thought the squibs were pretty good, but yeah, somebody yeah. does get shot in the butthole. Well, not the butthole, but <laughs> <in> the ass, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, a few a few yeah. inches away. And another thing that connects us to coffee is that both have a big prostitution subplot. That's yeah. How many uh, check marks did this oh, one get? Oh well, well, I can um, in fact. <laughs> answer that question let me just uh bring up my notes here i get this got um 10 out of 12 it didn't have a homophobic character and um and it even though the movie is set in and around a bar there's never actually a nightclub act you hear music playing but you never actually see like a band on stage or dancers or anything so but other than that it has everything else afros brothels churches funky music racist authority figures etc okay i tell you what this movie does have that not enough movies have that's Carl Weathers. <laughs> He's great in this. Even though he gets shot, he gets shot in the back. But through much of the movie, when he's there, I'm like, yeah, I love him in this. Him shotgunning that car until it explodes—that's 
freaking yeah, anytime great. a pre-Apollo Creed Carl Weather shows up in something, it's always a treat. Yeah, I I, I love it when it's a post. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I love Carl Weathers. Period. Also, a great <laughs> Twitter follow or, or, or anybody on that website. I'll have to check that out. Actually, I mean, I would not have thought he was a a Twitter. Yeah, type. he ends all of his tweets with a hashtag God bless. <laughs> of course. I can only hear that as Apollo Creed, though. <laughs> God bless. And uh, and another thing I, I will say about this, I have two other things I want to mention for my notes, is uh, does Fred Williamson own a shirt that buttons up all the way? <laughs> no, I've never never seen it in all my Fred Williamson movies. Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> um, and then another thing I wanted to mention is, like, early on in the movie, the amount of money that uh, Duke's brother owed the cops was uh, $450. And I was curious what that would be in uh, 2024 USD. So I looked it up, and uh, $450 in 1975 would be $2,565 today. It's a decent amount, actually. Yeah. And Fred Williamson just got that in his pocket. Well, yeah. Of course, because he's the coolest dude around. Yeah, he's got his apart- his house all like decked out with all these like famous like musicians and whatnot all over the walls. You can kind of tell it's kind of like an ego trip for him. Not that there's anything really wrong with it, because it makes the film more entertaining, but... It's yeah. just something I noticed. Yeah, he has that. Not that there's anything Fred Williamson does that yeah. isn't an eagle. Trip. Okay, that's his whole brand. And he has uh, <laughs> like Native American pattern quilts up on his wall. I noticed that was weird. I guess that was just chic at the time. Well, that's all. I think that might also be a Williamson thing. Yeah, like Steven Seagal, he also thinks he's uh, Native American. Yeah, <laughs> I do not know that. I have no evidence to support that Fred Williamson believes he is Native American. <laughs> though, although Pam Greer has some. Uh, I think she has has some uh, Cheyenne blood. Cherokee, in her. I think. Oh, Cheyenne. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe they were her rugs. I don't know. <laughs> I think uh, Fred Williamson's uh, a bar fight in this, like his first fight, is a much, much better display of him him in a fight than the finale is. I think that's a, it's a really cool bar fight when him, him beating up the two, two racist takes trying to get money out of him. I actually agree because it, it's a. Not only does it look much better, but he allows himself to struggle in this fight. Like, he actually is kind of getting beat up by all these guys. But he's, like, you know, he's taking it and he's surviving. And I think that it makes it work on, a like, a hero level. You're like, this is the point where everyone really starts respecting him. And I think the audience does, too, there. And you go, wow, this guy's, like... Yeah, he's he's taking it and he's he's dishing back. Mm-hmm. It feels almost realistic in that sense. Yeah, there's a pretty good beat mm-hmm. in that uh, moment I, I, where somebody gets like uppercut it over a table. That was a does a, a good tumble over a table there. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing actually. Uh, it, it's sort of. He, does he ever use the hammer? Now that I'm thinking about it, that was his thing, where his nickname came from when he was playing football. I don't know. I was. I don't know if I ever saw him do it. Like he basically like kind of like karate chop people. Yeah, I don't think I saw him doing that in this one. <laughs> Wait, he did that on the football field? He just yeah, he would hit. He would him? hit the guys. They would just allow it back then. <laughs> he, he was he was trying to Muhammad Ali it uh, for fame in the, back in the day. But this was the days before CTE you know, they, was invented, so they would just let the football players do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, they would just. He would say, uh, you know. They would talk to him, and he would say, "Well, hammer to this guy, and that's that's it." <laughs> you know, he would just say that shit went before the games. But then, famously, he was playing against the Packers, and they beat him pretty bad. And then they said, "The." 
Packers broke the hammer. And not only that, one of his teammates fell on him during one of the tackles and it broke oh. his arm. Oh, no. So it just made him look. Yeah, that was yeah. That was like in the Super Bowl. I don't, I don't know it? if it was the Super Bowl. Maybe it was. I don't know. I remember reading about it last year, but I did not <laughs> store his information. Yeah, I, I heard about it a long time ago, too. So maybe it's not even true. I don't know. <laughs> Well, all of that's fascinating because all I know about 70s football, I only know from exploitation films. So. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, when, when it comes to football players who then became, you know, Jim Brown, Bernie Casey, I know there's more. Yeah, it was, in fact, Super Bowl okay. one. Damn. Is when the oh, Packers wow. broke the hammer. Wow, so we're getting some sports entertainment uh, history here as long, along with our pop culture. <laughs> <laughs> Famous um, non-filmed. Super Bowls or the only one that was non-filmed. Really? Yeah, the footage exists. There was oh. a guy that actually recorded it on, I think, Telecine or something, and uh, the NFL refuses to buy the re- the footage from him because they don't think he should have the rights for it. And he's like, well, I'm the only one who recorded it when it was broadcast. So, wow. There's a Pruder so film they, of they Super Bowls. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I liked this one. I, I This was one I hadn't seen before. And uh, I don't think it's especially notable within the black exploitation genre. I think you know you could find a lot of other movies that do similar things, but it's fun. I enjoy the actors. I enjoy the action. I just enjoy the funky ambiance that these films have. Yeah, I enjoy it because it's it's more obviously uh, an action film. It definitely it knows what it is, and it's playing to that audience. And I think it works for the most part. Yeah, I mean, of of the 106 Fred Williamson movies I have seen, I would definitely place this in the upper echelon. Um, it's got a, like a classic structure and some good fights and some. Uh, uh, it got a good like twist in the middle and stuff. Some cars uh, explode. It's good times. Good action. Yeah, I enjoy this one more than Coffee due to like things like it having more of a real structure to it rather than just killing the main villain in the opening scene, I guess. Like, Coffee kind of does in a way. But, I mean, I really enjoyed Bucktown a lot. I thought it was a very fun action movie with some good action scenes. And I like the cast a lot, even if Pam Greer is kind of wasted in it. Yeah. It would be weird to kill off the main villain in the opening scene of this one, given that he's introduced 30 minutes <laughs> Well, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's... That's about it, honestly. Yeah, and if you do like this one, you should probably check out Friday Foster, which, like I said, same director and most of the same cast, like Pam Greer, Falmus, Rasulala, uh, Carl Weathers, and even the kid, uh, Tierra Turner, is in that one. So if you enjoy... And that one, I think, was a bigger, slightly bigger budget production than this one is. So. Fair yeah, enough. I'll have to check that out. That sounds good. Also, notably, um, well, Friday Foster was based off of a comic strip. Is the first... Uh, black-led comic book movie, technically. Oh, okay. I was not aware of that. I'm just full of useless info. No, no, this is good stuff. <laughs> no, but I actually, I, I, so I like Friday Foster quite a bit, but um, didn't watch it for this, so. But I, but I, it is one of the ones I like. Another one with Carl Weathers in it, um, but he's just kind of in there. Yeah, I think, when I think of the all the classic uh, Fred Williamson ones, this is like, it's this uh, like Bucktown and uh, Black Caesar, Three the Hard Way, and uh, some of the ones whose name I am not going <laughs> to say out loud. Um, yeah. That's really the best ones, I think. And this one this one rates highly. It's uh, a lot better than most of the stuff he... No, it's, it's better than all of the stuff he directed himself. 
because none of those are uh, really particularly good. That's fair. Yeah, though I did like a hammer, which uh, we mentioned earlier. That one's pretty good. We'll get to more. We'll get to these one of these times. <laughs> these other ones. <laughs> All right. So is that the show? But in the meantime, <laughs> yeah, I think that that'll about do it. All right. Well, thank so. you so much for having me on, guys. Oh, you're great. Thank, yeah, thank you. you. Yeah. You have anything you wanna you wanna plug your blog? Or was anything? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I uh, um, have uh, Zach's Film Thoughts. It's a uh, Zach's Film Thoughts, Z A C K S Film Thoughts at Blogspot, and I've been doing that since two thousand and eight. Uh, and yeah, please come read that because I I think only a dozen people ever look at it in a month. So I'm I'm about to start my month of uh, Oscar. I'm gonna try and watch and review all of uh, this year's Oscar nominees. So, all right, I'll put a link to that in the show description for this one. Thanks. But also, uh, come check out the site, check out the Discord here, and our Patreon, all out of bubblegum, which we've actually published an episode on this year. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yeah, if you want to listen to our uh, our favorite films of twenty twenty three, you should uh, join up, sign up for the Patreon. But until uh, next time, guys. Next time, we're doing Cleopatra Jones and Cleopatra Jones and the Casino of Gold. Twice the uh, Cleopatra Jones for your money. (laughs) (laughs) See you later. Yeah. Yeah. Adios. I was. I came with the guns and the razor blades. That was good. And I could drive a tractor through a wall. So, no. Um, they growing up not only in the airbase but growing up in a hunting family in Wyoming. But the razor blades came from the urban. Um, activities and the urban gangs and people talking about, well, we're going to have a fight tonight. Woohoo! Well, those big girls are coming over. They're threatening us. We're going to put razor blades in our hair. It was easy for him because he really didn't believe it was coming. But it ain't going to be easy for you because you better believe it's coming. Coffee is the color of your skin.